Hello, fellow true crime lovers. Welcome to another episode of Dimes of Crime. This is your host, Richa. And I'm Haley. So, what are you drinking today, Haley? So, I'm still not feeling good, but I'm actually drinking bourbon. So, oh I don't my know good. Look at that. What a trooper. <laughs> but trooper. I'm doing it because last week for you guys but yesterday for us because we're just doubling up on a bunch of episodes because somebody's going on vacation we won't tell you where she's going on vacation until she gets back but we are um just yeah piling all yeah we're just trying to get ahead on episodes so we can keep getting out content for you guys um we're trying really hard but Haley and i both have jobs toddlers and it's getting tough but we are going back to back this week and it we need to be on schedule and we need to go back to back for the next few weeks. So exactly. We might miss one or few one or two weeks here and there, but we're going to try our best to get each week rolling for you guys. Anyways, I'm drinking back to my wine. <laughs> um, there you go. And uh, what I did while I was researching my notes was post an Instagram story of what our cup looks like. And I did a little poll oh, nice. of, nice. yeah, and I did a little poll of whether you guys would like to buy it or not. I know Haley's mentioned that we're going to do a giveaway, but I just want to get opinions on whether you guys like it, how it looks, if we put it up for sale, if you guys would buy it. Your opinions would really help. I'm sure this is not going to be live when you guys hear it, but maybe we'll do another post of it just a regular post and not a story post so you guys can go back and vote on it for us like comment a heart or something if you would buy it or not you know yeah I like that idea yeah anyways so uh, I'm drinking red wine again which is my go-to drink all the time I was on Moscow Mule yesterday but I've simmered down to my wine tonight um, and water as always so do you guys want to not you guys. Haley, do you want to just jump into the episode? Oh, before we do that, there's disclaimers. If you're listening to us on loud and not on headphones, please be courteous of other people who don't like true crime. There's also going to be gory details. So kids and other people who don't like this stuff, you know, just be wary of that. Um, we say this every time. And this case, unfortunately, does have a little bit of gory stuff. Uh, but yeah, just put us on headphones. It's always advised better for you and us <laughs> that kids yeah, exactly. and other innocent people who are not used to this don't hear us. Um, okay, Haley, you ready? Did I? I don't remember if I told you who I'm doing this week. Or I not. think you gave me a name, but you know, I tried not to look it up or anything. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to choose between two people. Um, the case we're going to do today is about Dorothea Puente. She's not the victim. She had multiple victims. Some uh, We are going to talk about the victims as I go through the story. But funny story about the other person that I was considering <laughs> um, was actually suggested by my husband. And I'll save her name for a later date when I do end up telling you guys her story. But he had texted me while I was at my regular work with just a random name and he said you're welcome <laughs> and I was very confused about why he was texting me a random girl's name and saying you're welcome and then I was even more confused when he said at least it's not involving children and two minutes later because it was still early in the morning and I hadn't had my coffee and I was at work bummed about not being next to my toddler it hit me oh he found a true crime case for me so I think I've finally gotten my husband into it. He may listen to a few of our episodes not on mute <laughs> right. and, and actually pay attention. So 
moving to our story for today, I will list all the sources in our description of the episode. Like we are always going to try to do, they're too long to name, um, but they will all be listed nonetheless. Okay, so let's get into it. This is a story that will have a very gruesome end in Sacramento, California. So I know I've told you guys that I'm from India and we've done a few cases from there. But today we're talking about my current home, California, Uh, be it I'm in SoCal. This is about Northern California, but it's still California. And I lived in NorCal, so. There you go. It's connected (laughs) to both of us. So before we get there to the end, I want to start at the very beginning on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California. A baby girl, Dorothea Helen Gray, was born to Jesse James and Trudy May Gray. She was the sixth of seven children, all of whom struggled in the Gray household. Sources report that with little income, there was also a lack of love in the house. Jesse James died of tuberculosis in 1937. So this is about eight years after Dorothea. So Dorothea was just about eight years old. And her mother, Trudy, who was an alcoholic, routinely abused her children. This involved, but wasn't necessarily and unfortunately limited to pretty regular beatings for all of the kids involved, all seven kids. Um, if you ask me what her, what the names of her um, sisters and her brothers were, I have no information. I didn't bother, bother to look. It would have just taken me down a different rabbit hole and this case is already going to be very long with how many victims there are. So um, if you do have that question, put it in our comments or somewhere, email us, DM us, tweet us, um, and I'll do the research and try to get back to you guys as best as I can. So this involved regular beatings for all the kids, and the abuse finally came to a stop when Trudy died in a motorcycle accident in 1938. So this is barely a year after Dorothea's dad's death in 1937 because of tuberculosis. Um, This also forced all the seven gray children into the foster care system. Dorothea was now orphaned and all her siblings were separated. I'm assuming because they were all placed in different homes, this which absolutely breaks my heart, by the way, I will never understand, understand parents who... Not, I'm not saying I don't understand death, um, but I don't understand parents who refuse to offer their children love and nourishment that these innocent souls, who are basically sponge, sponges, um, deserve and require, essentially. So that part breaks my heart that at this point, at eight, Dorothea's orphaned, and she's not just in foster care, but even those eight years, she probably hadn't seen much affection and love from any of her parents yeah it's unfortunate and then also to be separated from your family yeah and now she has no yeah exactly now her sisters and brothers are probably in different houses so she's essentially just we'll get into it so dorothea often bounced between foster care and relatives homes without ever truly finding a permanent home Uh, i'm sure this is already obvious but this lack of stability love and security coupled with brace yourselves, alleged sexual abuse forced Dorothea to run away at the age of 16 when she moved to Olympia, Washington. This is where she tried to make a living as a sex worker. 
the trauma that Dor- Dorothea had endured as a young child from her alcoholic mother and the significant time she spent as a sex worker and periods of incarceration, which we'll talk about this in more detail as to why she was incarcerated, will end up playing a big role in her future, which there are no spoilers here, also end up shaping her into the monster that she will eventually become. So I told you guys that I'm doing the case on Dorothea Puente. This is not, I'm not going into victim background. This is the person we're going to talk about who commits like gruesome crimes later. Well, um, reasons maybe why she became the person yeah. she became. Yeah, so I'm just going into the background of, you know, what her childhood was and what might have again I I mentioned a little bit in the last time that I um was telling the story of Kimberly Kessler I don't go into this much detail about the criminals because I like it I think it just helps my mind rationalize why someone would have done such horrible things also if you're a parent and you don't want your child to be messed up I mean just shower them with love unconditionally give them love and protect them because that is your job is to love them and protect them no matter what really yeah and yeah that's the best you can do all you can do is be the best parent to your child and what happens after that is not in your control but to offer them love and protection and everything else that a parent should is in your control I know that there are obviously cases where that's offered and the person still ends up doing horrible things but um just as a parent, I feel like it's our duty to do that for our kids. Anyways, moving on from that rant. rant. Yeah, we're not so, parenting podcast. Yeah, we're not a parenting podcast. Everyone has their reasons. It's just my opinion. That's all. Um, so remember at the age of 16, Dorothea had moved to Olympia and she was a sex worker, right? Well, that same year, she gets married to a soldier named Fred McFall. I don't know how soon after her move to Olympia this happens, unfortunately, but she is still 16 when she marries him. So it can't be can't have been more than a year after her move. Um, anyway, Fred McFall had just returned from World War II. Um, the newlywed couple had two daughters between 1946 and 1948, which means Dorothea was about 20 when she became a mother of two. Just let that sink in for like a little bit. I mean, talk about a different time. I honestly cannot imagine having children at that age, let alone two children at that age. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. That's how old my mom was when she had both me and my sister. She was 20 when she had my second, when she had my sister. Yeah, I think my mom was, my mom was 67. Um, it still so, seems crazy to me. That's my so, age now. Exactly. Still, to have another to, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My mom was 27 when she had me. When she had my sister, she was a little bit older. But still, that even 27 seems young to me. <laughs> Anyways, so I can't imagine having two children. And we've already gone into a little bit of Dorothea's past. So needless to say, Dorothea struggled with her motherly duties. And she ended up sending one child to live with relatives in Sacramento and the other one she gave up for adoption by the end of 1948, after which Fred filed for divorce. Because obviously what guy would want to put up with that? I'm not saying I blame Dorothea, but at the same time, I understand where Fred's coming from. He probably wanted to raise his own children. 
Dorothea, I assumed after the divorce, turned to sex work again, but four years later in 1952 was married again to a merchant seaman, not like sperm seaman, but an actual man who works on the ocean slash sea. I only mentioned that because I am typing this out in my notes and I like figured I should make that differentiation <laughs> and thus I say a seaman. His name was <laughs> Axel Bren Johansson. He was in San Francisco. While married to Axel, Dorothea started drinking a lot more. And sources alleged that she created a fake persona calling herself, I'm most definitely going to mispronounce it. I tried to Google right before I got on this recording how to pronounce it, but I got rushed and never made it. <laughs> so she called herself or her fake persona, Taya. Singoala Nayarda, while claiming to be a Muslim of Egyptian and Israeli descent. Quite a stark difference. I don't know where she came up with this idea, but multiple sources did list this, so I'm counting this as pretty verified. That's crazy alias, like very Yeah. It's very it's interesting. Very, <laughs> very I even specific. tried specific. Yeah, I even tried to Google what it meant, you know, because a lot of like my name in Hindi actually means something. And so I was wondering if this meant something. I, I couldn't find it, honestly. Um, I'm sure that wasn't just weird for Axel, but it made their marriage rough, to say the least. Sources say that their that her marriage to Axel was even more trouble than the one with Fred. And with Alex's frequent trips to the sea irritated Dorothea she retaliated to his absence by sleeping with multiple men and gambling away his money after Dorothea had an affair with a police officer at a San Francisco brothel which I don't know what a cop is doing at a brothel but whatever I don't know the laws (laughs) this is also like the 60s so maybe it was different Alex had her committed I don't know what committed means. Like, did he send her to a rehabilitation center or like he got her arrested? I'm not sure. But despite all this, her marriage to Alex was by far her longest lasting relationship. And it went from 1952 to 1966. So that's 14 years. Wait, wait. So she is having an affair at a brothel with a cop. Mm -hmm. And well, she was having an affair with multiple men while Alex was gone. But the cop is the one who got her committed? No, that was, I guess, Alex's last straw. I don't know why. Okay, gotcha. So he got her committed, which is why I'm saying I don't know what committed means. Like, does he, did he like send her to a rehab for sex addiction or did he like get her arrested? I'm not sure, but all the source just said had her committed. So despite, um, did she work the, was she working the brothel? The Netflix documentary that I watched said that at some point she was arrested for running a brothel. I'm Mm. not sure if they were referring to this one, but she did at some point in her life run one or was arrested for running one. Got it. So she married twice after Alex and both those marriages were far shorter lived and her personality was now in full bloom. She attempted to open several boarding homes across the late 30s and early 70s. In 1968, Dorothea married a Roberto Jose Puente, from whom she got her current last name, Dorothea Puente. But that marriage, as mentioned earlier, was not long-lived and only lasted 16 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
I read somewhere that the marriage ended because Roberto used to actually abuse Dorothea. And so she was the one to file divorce and also filed a restraining order against him in 1975. Mm. So this was the one marriage from all the ones that I've read where she was the one to initiate divorce and get out. So after her divorce from Roberto, Dorothea focused on running a boarding house located at 21st and F Streets in Sacramento. She established herself as a genuine resource to the community to aid alcoholics, homeless people, and mentally ill people by holding Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and assisting people to sign up to receive social security benefits. And what I mean by that is she would like help house them so they had an address to provide to the government to send their welfare checks, which was probably a big deal to these people. She essentially changed her public image to that of a respectable older matron by putting on vintage clothing, wearing large granny glasses, and letting her hair turn gray. Now, remember, she sounds old, but she was born in 1929, and we're still in 1975, so she's barely 50 years old. She's in no way grandma age yet. I mean, maybe for some people... You know, their grandmas by this age, but she's still pretty young is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but she she put out the image of a respectable older grandma type person. She even let her hair turn gray. So she also established herself as a respected member in Sacramento's Hispanic community by funding charity scholarships and radio programs. Sounds bizarre, but we'll get into how she got the money for this later. Um, Dorothea's final marriage was to a Pedro Angel Montalvo or Montalvo. I can't pronounce that. And this one lasted even shorter, guys, than Kim Kardashian's marriage to Chris Humphreys. Does anyone remember that 72-day affair? No? Just me? Okay, never mind. Anyways, Dorothea's marriage to Pedro lasted a shocking eight days. After which, after which Pedro fled their home out of fear. Um, This was quoted from a book called Disturbed Ground. If anyone's interested in reading, it's about Dorothea Puente and her crimes. Um, Why was Pedro afraid, you ask? Well, we're now about to take a very dark turn into this story. So buckle up. And also, this is a good time for us to jump into an ad. (laughs) Okay, and we're back. So... Before the ad, we just talked about Dorothea's fourth failed marriage, which lasted about eight days to a Pedro Angel Montalvo. Uh, So in 1978, Dorothea was also charged and convicted of illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants. Remember, she'd established her as a really great like philanthropist and whatever. She was boarding people so that they could receive their social security checks. Well, she's charged with illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks in 1978 that belonged to some of her tenants. She was given five years probation in order to pay $4,000 in restitution. I'm assuming this was like a lot of money back in the 80s. Anyway, so this will be the beginning of the end for Dorothea. And we're going to obviously talk about it more. So now remember, Dorothea had made an image and a name for herself in Sacramento as a philanthropic by feeding and providing shelter to the ones in need and donating to charities in the Sacramento area. According to the Netflix documentary, she was well known among politicians and ran in pretty high circles. 
if you're wondering how this could have happened, remember that this is still way back when computers were not a thing. And also Dorothea had changed her name multiple times because of her marriage. So people, including law enforcement, never really put two and two together about Dorothea's present and mm-hmm. past because her name had changed so many times and she'd been arrested under different identities. Plus she's just an old little um, grandma that's not old but looks old. Yeah, who looks great. There's no reason to investigate her, right? Yeah. Um, her house that she helped board people in was on 1426 F Street. Fun side note about this. Um, after this whole debacle that we're going to talk about, two people that I'm just not going to name did buy the house for not a lot of money and they thought they were going to be able to like paint it and make everyone forget the past of this house but essentially it's been named an historical landmark and this house can never be taken down or demolished it will always stay up in sacramento california that's weird yeah weird anyway so yeah her house was on 1426 f street if you're interested in going seeing it if you're ever in san sacramento go look at it and send us pictures (laughs) tag us in it if you do see it um I'm not sure that's my thing. It, I don't know. I might want to go see it. Just, I don't know. It's like an eerie feeling being somewhere where all this stuff has happened, you know, and then you go in there now and it's probably mm-hmm. not as eventful. I don't know. It's right. eerie slash, I don't know. Thrilling is not the word I want to use, but I can't think of the word I want to use right now. Do you believe in ghosts? <sighs> that's a tough one, Haley. <laughs> I have never had a a supernatural experience, but I've been super into haunted stories and, you know, all those like ghost hunter and ghost tracking shows. So um, I would really like to know if they're real or not. And what I mean by that is I would I would really like to talk to people who like record these shows to figure out if this is for real or not. I really, I don't know how I feel about whether I want it to be real or not because that would be creepy as hell. (laughs) But Careful what you ask for. Every time I go on a true crime TikTok, there are always like mediums on there saying they're talking to whoever. Oh my God, no. Okay, then no. (laughs) Do not, if you're a medium listening to me, (laughs) do not tell me that you've opened up some Ouija board somewhere and are like talking about something weird coming into my home. I do not want to be part of that at all. I just would like to hear from you if you've had a personal experience. That's all. Yeah, I do. I want to hear those stories too. Yeah. We will, <laughs> if we ever get bigger on our Instagram, we'll host ghost stories where you can tell us a ghost story. And we'll post it on our story and on. Yeah, maybe even we'll do a special, some special Patreon episodes down the line where we read some of your stories if you decide to send them to us. But that'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll figure that out later. All right. (laughs) Anyways, so this uh, 1426 F Street now becomes a well-established rehabilitation center for the homeless and the ones in need, like I mentioned, and especially some senior members of the community that needed a permanent address for their welfare checks to show up. In 1988, this all came crashing down for Dorothy when a police investigation into multiple missing tenants at her home finally caught up to her. Over the course of the investigation, hold on to your seats, the police excavated... Do you want to guess how many bodies, Haley? Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Six. Oh, so close. Seven. Seven dead bodies in Dorothea's backyard. 
all in wow. varying states of decomposition, which means they'd all been killed at different times in last however many times or which time. That's so crazy. Yeah. It was soon revealed that the bodies belonged to the former tenants that were also reported missing or had never been heard from after after, after a certain, certain time. Many of them, like I mentioned, were sadly ill, elderly, and vulnerable who relied on Dorothea for her care and housing. They all were placed there because of either that was a house they had heard of being safe because she'd made such a name for herself in the community or uh, I know of one victim that is ex- extensively talked about in the Netflix documentary um, and he's placed there as um, I forget the term but it's it's a house that the homeless shelter people place him in because he feels safe there and after a lot of referrals what's the Netflix documentary it's called Worst Roommates. It just came out. Mm. This I think is I saw one it. of the first episodes. It's really good. You have to watch it. I watched every single episode. It's There's awesome. only five, but it's really interesting. I think five or is six. Is it all of Dorothy? No. Dorothy is just the first episode. Oh. The other ones are different people. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like the Catching Killers mm-hmm. docuseries. Every episode is about a different person. There's, I think, only one person that they do two episodes on because his rap sheet was so extensive. But yeah, it's really good. It's crazy. I never heard of this lady. Yeah, I know. I hadn't either um, until actually a few weeks ago. And then Netflix did the documentary. And I was like, okay, I got to do her. Um, anyway, so they all were placed there because of how well she had built her image in the community. And by her, I mean Dorothea. When the bodies were uncovered, the media started calling her the death house landlady. She was essentially killing them and then keeping their welfare and social security checks for herself to live a lavish lifestyle, buying herself cosmetic surgeries and expensive alcohol. I don't know why she was buying surgeries, but whatever. That's what the sources listed. I have no further info on why that was. She wants to look younger or maybe older. I don't know. But remember how she was being philanthropic and she would like buy people food, free food and donate to charities. This is how she was keeping all these checks and living off of that. Now we're going to move on. I'm still like, why? How does she get the checks? And how does she cash them? Well, she would steal their identities. So once they're dead, it's the 70s, right? right? Like or what? 80s. She would take someone's identity put her picture on there and then that boom she was that person and then she would go and get their checks also a lot of these checks were mailed to her house oh, okay. where she was boarding them yeah but the other part is that they're male and female victims yeah they're male and female the only common um theme here is that they're all old and vulnerable so they have nowhere else to go i'm never going no into one to a turn home. to <laughs> were her famous last ones. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going into it. No older build people home. Um, yeah. I don't I don't think I want to either. But we'll see. Crew can take care of me. So anyways, um her motive in all of these um things is going to be collecting on their social security checks and their welfare so she can continue to live this lifestyle that she's built for herself. Um, And so now we're going to move on to her victims and what we think happened to them. Ruth Monroe was considered to be Dorothea's first murder victim. 
after Ruth's husband fell terminally ill in 1982, and I think he had cancer is what the Netflix docuseries says, the 61-year-old moved in with her best friend, Dorothea Puente, for support. So not only was Ruth Dorothea's first victim, she was also Dorothea's best friend, or at least Ruth thought that she was Dorothea's best friend. Mm. So she moved in with her friend for support after her husband died. And just three weeks after moving in, uh, Ruth was reported dead after overdosing on codeine and acetaminophen. Dorothea told the police her friend had committed suicide because she was depressed over her husband's illness. The police bought her story because there was no reason, again, to question this frail-looking grandma who was so nice to the community, and her death was officially ruled a suicide. So in the Netflix documentary, when Ruth's son is interviewed, he came to Dorothea's place to collect Ruth's belongings. And according to him, Ruth had a bunch of jewelry and money, uh, but Dorothea told him that Ruth had given all of that to her, and she basically handed him like an empty purse and told him to get out. That's so messed up. Yeah, Um, he to this day believes that Dorothea killed her because I think he says this story about how the same day before he found his um, mom dead, he came to visit her at Dorothea's place and uh, Ruth was drinking alcohol and she never really drank. So that was odd. And so he thinks um, he and her other family members of Ruth, like her son, believed that Dorothea drugged her possibly by slipping medication in her drinks Mm. yeah which is really sad so her second victim was everson gilmuth during dorothea's three-year stint in prison remember for the forged checks uh she had become pen pals with everson uh they fell in love during her time in prison and when everson When Dorothea gets released, Everson moves from Oregon to California to join her um, when she's released in 1985. They were already making wedding plans. However, within the year, um, I think it was like within four weeks or a few weeks that that the Netflix documentary mentioned, that Dorothea had already hired a man to build and dispose of a wooden box that would later be revealed to contain Everson's body. His remains were discovered on January 1st, 1986 at a riverbank junk dumping site in Sutter County, California. However, they weren't identified as to be Everson's for three years after the fact. Wait, so how long had his body been there? Three. Well, that I don't know. It was discovered on January 1st, 1986, and he'd moved in with her, I think, late 1985. So probably like a few weeks, a month, oh, okay. maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So don't quote me on this. I really don't remember. Then, he moved in with her. This is a pen pal. Mm-hmm. He moved in with her. She gets released from jail. He moves in with her um, after she makes it back to her house. And within a few weeks of him being around, she tells a guy, I need you to make this giant coffin for someone. And that's the coffin that she dumps his body in in the riverbank. Get out of prison. And- yeah. <laughs> so, but even... Even though her his body was found in 1986, it wasn't identified as Everson's until three years after. Because I think what happened in the 
as they describe in the docuseries is that this investigation that eventually led to Dorothea's arrest, I think one of the police officers finally realizes her MO and remembers this John Doe that they'd found years ago at the river bank dumping site that like had similar similarities to other deaths that Dorothea was involved in. And that's how they link them. Uh, the extreme decomposition of Everson's body meant no official cause of death was ever declared, but it is believed that he was killed by Dorothea's typical MO drugging and overdosing. 64 year old Dorothy Miller was another boarder at the death house when she vanished in October 1987. Like her other victims, Dorothy again died at the hands of drug overdosing. Though her body was badly decomposed by the time it was excavated from Dorothea's backyard. So this is one of the bodies that they actually removed from the death house. Mm -hmm. um, there were traces of fluorazepam that were found in her remains. After her death, Dorothea used Dorothy's veteran ID card to obtain medical care um, and was charged with the first degree murder and the death of Dorothy Miller. So this is one of the victims that they were able to prove Dorothea caused the death of and she was actually charged with the first degree murder of Dorothy Miller. 55-year-old Benjamin Fink was another one of the boarders and a reported alcoholic. Fink was last seen in April of 1987 before disappearing without a trace and his body again would later be unearthed from behind Dorothea's house, <laughs> dressed only in a pair of boxers. Like Dorothy, his body contained traces of fluorazepam and his was the second first degree murder that Dorothea would eventually be charged with. Wait, so how many bodies are there now? The list goes... Oh, seven so bodies are all, already been all being exhumed. And, oh. Yeah, I'm just Got going it. into the history of, yeah, who we found, how they died. Yeah. So these bodies, even though I'm saying when they disappeared, like 1987, 1986, um, they all were discovered in 1988. Mm. And they were all in varying stages of decomposition That's when crazy. they were exhumed. Yeah. So the list goes on and on. So I will spare everyone the details of how the other victims died, but I do think that they deserve to be named and remembered. Um, her other alleged victims were Leona Carpenter, who was 78, Alvaro Burt Montoya, 51, Betty Palmer, James Gallo, Gallup, and Vera Faye Martin. They all died of drug overdoses. However, police believe that Vera may actually still have been alive when she was buried because there were apparent claw marks in the dirt surrounding where her body had been buried buried in Aww, the backyard so shitty that's not how i want to go out yeah can you imagine you turn to someone that you think is going to help take care of you support you in your old age when you have nowhere else to go and this is what ends up happening to you i mean the 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 thoughts that these people had before they passed must have been so lonely and sad. That's all I was thinking about when I was typing out my notes. And so I feel really sad about that. Anyways, 
um, another side note, when uh, Vera's body was found, her rich, her wristwatch was actually still ticking. So there was still battery in the watch that she died with. That's how, that's how recent her body had died or been buried there. Anyways, it's just a weird thing that time never stopped passing once like, she died. So, yeah, that's weird to me. Anyway, so Puente, uh, a.k.a. Dorothea, was charged with a total of nine murders, but was only convicted of three. Um, you can read more about why this is, but I believe there was a hung jury for six of the cases. <clears throat> so they only convicted her of three, and they declared a mistrial for the other six. She received life without the possibility of parole and was incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. I didn't even know that was a place in California somewhere. Like, I just like saying that name, Chowchilla. At Chowchilla. first, I thought you said like Chinchilla. A, it's like a... And then I got good I got like good feelings. It's like a noodle brand. Fluffy Chinchilla. Oh, my God. It's not good feelings. <laughs> um, she died in prison at Chowchilla on March 27, 2011 from natural causes. Dorothea was 82 when she died. And that's it. That's the end of today's story crazy fun side note though is dorothea was known to be one of the most prolific female serial killers in america but remember how i named eileen warnos Mm -hmm. as one of them i think eileen warnos might have either had the same no actually eileen warnos i think had seven victims so dorothea even exceeds her victim count and I think some articles that I read even compared her victim count to the son of Sam at the time in New York. So, I mean, she killed a lot of people. And there are still sometimes letters to the police from alleged victims' families that come uh, to them that say, we believe Dorothea might have killed so-and-so because she knew my mom or she knew my sister or something like, like there's that. there's probably more. So... Sad that we'll never know how many. Nine is allegedly nine convicted of three, maybe even more, which does make her like. How can you just take nine people's lives? Like, that's insane. I also don't understand. Nothing is a good reason to do that. But for social security. It's kind of like cyanide Molico when you did her. Like your motive is just like. Again, it's like it's overdose. Like, it's, again, poisoning to some extent. So I guess when you can't physically overpower your victim, you rely on something that that renders them powerless, which is drugs. Also, it's gory, you know? It's like, I don't know. I don't know. She would prepare her bodies. Like, I left out some of these details, but if you guys watch the Netflix docuseries, there was a whole room in her house, this death house, where... If you entered and you moved the carpet, there was like petrified body fluid that had like seeped into the floorboards because that's where she prepared the bodies before she wrapped them in tarp or blankets and buried them in her backyard. It's pretty gross. Disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's, Disgusting. I mean, it's it's insane. One of her tenants i think is like john something actually describes the smell of death coming from this one area of the house continuously for the entire time that he was there and the reason he described it as the smell of death was because he used to work 
at a mortuary. So yeah, there's a lot of gory shit to this that I just left off because it's not necessary. Um, but if you are interested, I highly recommend the Netflix docuseries. Although the docuseries does leave out a lot of Dorothea's early life stuff. So if you're interested in that, then go read the sources that I listed in the description and those will provide a lot more color that's a good one it was a good one and i can't believe i never heard it before yeah as enough especially since she's a serial killer you know it's not like she killed nine people nine that's a lot a lot but i think maybe it's from the 70s so people forgot about it i don't know whatever because eileen warnos was a little bit more recent than that so that's true less reporting i don't know who knows yeah so anyways that's it guys and if you have notes about it or know something that i missed about this case um reach out to us on any of the one social platforms that we've mentioned otherwise we'll see you guys next week with a drink in hand yeah don't let the murder thoughts bite